Hello and welcome to A Murderous Affair. My name is Gabrielle and this is the podcast where we talk about women in history known for mayhem and murder. This week, our woman definitely leads into the, well, more mayhemy murdery side. Her name is Olive Yang and she was royalty turned opium warlord whose CIA supplied army had delivery routes all across the Golden Triangle. So, You could see how she caught my attention. But first, have you guys tried Coffee Over Cardio yet? I don't know how you haven't because it's literally one of the only coffee companies I genuinely enjoy drinking coffee from. They've got great coffee flavors, and if coffee isn't your thing, then they've also got flavored mix-in hydrates to help you stay cool and hydrated, especially during this insane summertime. Check out their stuff at coffeeovercardio.com and use the code FRUMIUSREADS to get 10% off your first order. That's F-R-U-M-I-O-U-S-R-E-A-D-S. All right, let's go ahead and get started. Born Yang Qin Siu, somehow getting the name Olive, I'm not sure how, it's never really explained. Yang was born to royalty in the northern Shan states of British Burma on June 24, 1927. She was one of 11 children and from a very young age was described by family members as refusing the traditional roles of women in that time period. She wore boys' clothing, refused to bind her feet, and would oftentimes fall in love with her brother's girlfriends and try to steal them away from them. As a young schoolgirl, Yang would carry a gun in her bag and use it to scare all her other schoolmates at a private Christian school in elite Burma. The beginnings of a lifelong struggle with conforming to the female gender norms during that time led to a lovely nickname of Hairy Legs, as well as journalists using the term bisexual to describe her even when she said that she preferred the term lesbian. Later on in life, she would ask to be called Uncle Olive by friends and family members. One of her brothers, Francis, is quoted as saying that he still felt regret when he thought of how he had treated his sister when they were younger and how he had scolded her for not being normal. We would ask her why she didn't wear women's clothes or why she had to have a short haircut. We would shout at her for chasing women, he said. I told her when I went to visit her about two years ago that I was sorry. I told her, I will call you uncle from now on. And this was in a 2015 interview. Now, tragedy seemed to strike all at once for the Yang family when they were forced to flee their home when it was burned by Japanese troops in an invasion during World War II. Now, like I said, Yang and her family were kind of born into this royalty. Her family owned a lot of land that was growing opium and along with the fact that they were those hereditary rulers. So they had a lot of political clout as well as just having a lot of connections through the opium trade. It really shook them all when they were forced to flee. Shortly after this, her parents decided that to curb her kind of wild behavior, marriage was the answer. I can tell you right now that that did not work. Now, by her wedding day, her mother had died from unknown causes and her father was bedridden and close to death as well. On top of that, Yang made it plainly known that she had no interest in being married and much less any interest in being married to a man. One story goes that as her husband, who was also her younger cousin, which ill, anyway, as her husband cousin came to consummate the marriage, Yang threw one of the bathroom pots, which, you know, because this was before indoor plumbing was a thing, at him in a fit of rage for daring to try to consummate the marriage. According to Yang, sister Judy. He was afraid of her. She had a reputation for having a quote brash temper and carrying guns. She didn't want to be married to him and she didn't want to have sex with him and she didn't want to be a mother. When she found out she was pregnant, Yang took matters in her own hands. She didn't want to be a mother or to have to follow what the traditional wifely roles expected of her, so she literally left her newborn with a wet nurse and fled into the jungle 
where she already had a militia known as Olive's Boys. They would go on to continue the family tradition of trafficking opium, and she would go on to develop shipping routes that would help make Southeast Asia's Golden Triangle the world's second largest source of illicit opium. So, I mean, not like a proud accomplishment, but still a big accomplishment. Her son was named Jeep sometimes spelled J-I-P-U, and she named him after the American Jeeps Yang had seen during World War II. He was apparently raised with other family members and kind of bounced from house to house, and in another interview said that he didn't really hold any harsh feelings towards his mother for that. Um, Obviously, I think in an interview with, like, the media, you're not going to come out, right, and bash your mom, but... Um, it said he says that she was just ahead of her time and that he couldn't blame her for not wanting the life that she'd been forced into. So soon after leaving, she began running with her crowd of bandits and opium dealers. And this would be where she would eventually become the, one of the most influential opium dealers and traffickers in history. Now, in 1950, there was a letter delivered to the National Archives in Yangon that tells the Shan State Commissioner about a four day long journey Yang had taken to a rebel outpost on the Chinese border. She was accompanied by soldiers that she referred to as employees, as well as a bunch of drug-loaded mules. Now, apparently, in the letter, Yang writes of how she had kidnapped Burmese police officials who had drunkenly tried to get bribes from her caravan. She didn't like that, obviously, and had her men tie them up with rope and kidnap them all the way to her new headquarters. In this letter that she wrote, she called the incident a misunderstanding. I knew I had done a very careless thing for which I felt very much ashamed, she said in the letter. Another intelligence dispatch sent to the Shan State Commissioner describes Yang as being, quote, manly hearted and a menace in men's fatigues with at least one pistol on her hip. Now, when she was away from her family, Yang was actually really accepted by the soldiers she commanded. According to a former soldier in Yang's army, L-I-U-G-U-O-X-I, we adored her. She was at least as brave as any one of the men. She was no different to us. Apparently, this former soldier became a member of parliament for the military-backed USDP in 2012. He once guarded mule-mounted caravans of opium with Yang and described her as a sharp shot who was more than capable on horseback. Eventually, Yang got onto the radar of the remnants of the Chinese nationalistic troops who'd been defeated by the Mao Communist Army in 1949. The troops had largely retreated to Taiwan after being defeated in 1949, and the ones that remained on the mainland were settled in the jungles of the Burma-Thailand-China border, and they would lead periodic attacks on the Chinese army. Now, Yang kind of entered the opium business in the early 1950s. At this time, the drug trade was being expanded by the Chinese nationalistic troops because it was helping to fund their efforts through the opium sales. So when she entered this business, when she started really kind of making a name for herself, she had enough political connections and kind of local say to serve as one of the region's first major drug traffickers, and that's why the army reached out to her to help them to help her in exchange for getting more routes and getting more soldiers for her command. She would help them fund their efforts. In a move that surprises no one these days, if you know anything about the CIA, it turns out that these nationalist troops had CIA backing because they were both interested in stopping the communistic spread. And you know, if this was the early stages of the Cold War. This led to an operation called Operation Paper, where American weapons were airlifted to Southeast Asia using planes owned by the CIA to help these nationalist troops 
as they fought and this entire operation was funded by the opium sales that Yang made. Obviously, this didn't make a lot of people happy and in 1952, a complaint was submitted by the Burmese government to the United Nations General Assembly that following year. Yang's army had been observed traveling across the border to an airfield in Thailand and an unmarked C-47 plane from Taiwan was there with weapons recognized as American that her army was seen unloading. By the age of 25, she commanded hundreds of soldiers. It's estimated up to a thousand who would transport opium. She was apparently one of the first people to use trucks and not mules to carry opium from the Burmese highlands to the Thai border where then heroin and other drugs were taken by sea to Hong Kong and distributed to markets around the world. But it wasn't long after this 1952 complaint that Yang was arrested for the first time. She was intercepted by Burmese officials while driving from the Thai border with her deputy Lo Sing Han and arrested on charges of providing illegal transportation across the border. Yang and her second-in-command were sentenced to five years in prison for this. Now, this deputy, Lo Sing Han, would be the one to gain credit for all of her achievements. He would apparently achieve the greatest notoriety in the realm of the Golden Triangle drug smuggling and considered one of Burma's richest men at the time of his death in 2013. But before this, when he was still Yang's lackey, essentially, his main job was to carry a jar of cigarettes for Yang. Now, when she was in prison, Yang says that she was beaten and abused both physically and sexually. When she was released, it turns out her older brother, Edward, who was one of the hereditary rulers in the Shan state, abdicated. In 1959, he and dozens of other rulers there abdicated, and upon her release from prison, Yang took control of his former army and became the de facto ruler of the territory. Now, this, along with her connections to the CIA, an influx of soldiers, really only solidified her power along her opium trade routes. It was also around this time that she, according to family and friends of both people, started dating Burmese movie actress Wawa Winshui. Yang gave her tons of gifts and actually added her name to the deed of one of her houses. In 2015, there was an interview with Win Shui where she denied ever having a relationship with Yang, even though she still lived in the house that Yang gave her on her old property. Really, I'm not buying that, oh, we were just friends excuse. You guys were more than gal pals here. Either way, in 1963, which was only a few years after having been released from her first round of prison, Yang was once again arrested by police when General Ni Wen seized power in Burma. This was part of his anti-opium crackdown and apparently the amount of power and unrest that she was capable of was enough of a reason for him to have her arrested and imprisoned for another six years in Yangon's Insign prison. She was released again in 1968 after suffering more physical and sexual abuse as well as torture during her imprisonment. Now when she was released, the nationalistic army that had been working with her was largely forced out of Burma because it was dislodged by a joint China-Burma military operation. And for her business in opium trafficking, Yang had been supplanted by, you guessed it, her old lackey, Lo Hsing Han. Yang lived in the homes of friends and family around Yangon for decades after her release and kind of flew under the radar a little bit. There's rumors that for part of her life, she actually went on to become a nun, but nothing's really heard of her until 1989 when she helped negotiate peace agreements with the Burmese government and the local rebel groups and other armies that were hiding in the jungle throughout Burma. Because she had so many connections in the, quote, complex tangle 
handle of drug-financed ethnic armies that had been spread, she was hired to be a liaison to negotiate these peace agreements. And she was actually able to help arrange a peace agreement with a Koking rebel force that lasted between the rebel force and the Burmese government from 1989 to 2009. Now, in 2015, which is when a lot of the articles, or when a lot of the interviews with close friends and family members and ex-girlfriends were conducted, Yang was in a wheelchair and lived with a family member and his militiamen in a compound in Muse. She was visited by journalists um, after having a stroke, and according to the journalist who visited, Yang said that she was happy to be living surrounded by deferential soldiers. She was shown a picture of her home that was being lived in by Wen Shui, and Yang, quote, responded with a knowing smile and a devilish laugh. With a Chinese cigarette in her hand, she said, that whole property was mine. Yang died on July 13th, 2017, and is survived by two younger sisters and her son. Yang's tomb was built for her with the help of one of her former soldiers and stands just outside the city in a muse, which is where she spent her final years. It is very sad for all of Kokang, said the former soldier. We have all come to say farewell to our leader. At her funeral, lots of militiamen showed up, lots of people dressed in military fatigues came to come and honor her life and kind of, I guess, the impact that she had. A lot of people are quoted as saying that she was really ahead of her time when it comes to gender norms, when it comes to a woman in a position of power. And I know it's like, oh, she was a drug trafficker and like, obviously drugs are bad. But she also kind of really was the first woman in that society to have a place in the army and have a plate and have a hold of a business even if that business was illegal but she had a business that she was in charge of and she really gained a lot of respect now a lot not a lot of people liked her and she really just did gain a lot of respect she was 90 years old when she died and that is the story of Olive Yang. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, and I would love to know what you guys think of our Woman of the Week. Our sources this week are coming from the New York Times, the Washington Post, and of course Wikipedia, as well as a website called coconuts.com, which had a feature on Olive Yang when she died and kind of covered her in an obituary. If you guys are interested in learning more about her, I definitely recommend you check out these resources I listed or there's also a couple family members who have written books about her life too. Let me know if there's anything I missed or if there's anything else you think was important or if you guys have any questions about Yang or just anything in general about the podcast. Make sure you subscribe and follow wherever you listen to podcasts. We come out with new episodes every week. We are on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google Play, Stitcher, Libsyn, basically anywhere and everywhere that you can listen to podcasts. If you guys would like to hear more from me, Check out my Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, basically any social media at Frumius Reads. That's F-R-U-M-I-O-U-S-R-E-A-D-S. But that's all I have for you guys for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and I will talk to you guys next week. Stay spooky, friends. Goodbye.